Hi, welcome to another episode of Dialogues. Today I am talking to Chris Mason, who's a Cornell geneticist and biophysicist who looks at the application of genetic medicine to the treatment of cancer, but he also works with NASA on the impact of space travel on uh, the human genome. He's just this really big and interesting thinker, and he's got a very big and interesting book out, which is called The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds. And in that, he argues that we have this moral duty to escape not only Earth, but but actually ultimately the solar system in order to save our species. And then goes on to argue that in order to do that, we're going to have to genetically engineer ourselves. We're going to need what he calls armor on the inside to survive in these kind of new environments. So he spells out what it means in terms of manipulating the, the human genome in order to travel further into space. And felt like a really good time for this conversation, given that we're in the, the midst of a new space era with uh, missions planned to the moon and, and Mars and helicopters flying around Mars and so on. And so we go through the why and the, the when and the how of this 500-year plan, uh, starting up with settling Mars. We also talk a bit about a twin study that he's done looking at the genetic impact of space travel, which uses the uh, results from astronaut Scott Kelly, who was up in orbit for a year or more, and comparing that to his twin brother, who also used to be, identical twin brother, used to be an astronaut as well, Mark Kelly, who's now actually a senator from, from Arizona. We dig a bit into some of the ethics of genetic research, just more generally for the you know for the Earthlings right now, and my concerns in particular that could be used to uh, increase the inequalities that we already see. It's probably inevitable that we also have a discussion about the sci-fi series, The Expanse, and what they got right and what they got wrong in that. So it's a very broad-ranging uh, conversation, which I, I really enjoyed, and I hope you do too. Chris, welcome to Dialogues. Uh, great. Well, thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. Oh, congratulations on your on your book and your fascinating career to date. I uh, really enjoyed digging into into your work. And I just want to start by situating you a little bit for people, because I think there's an interesting story from reading Isaac Asimov's foundation at the age of 15, through to swabbing the handrails of New York subway trains to yes. genetic cures for cancer, to working with NASA on how we might potentially genetically engineer astronauts to send them to Mars and beyond. So just give us sort of the brief version of how that story <laughs> unfolded, because it's a great, great story. Uh, well, thanks. I, I, it, yeah, I think you summed it up quite well in terms of some uh, interesting turning points in my career and also my life. So I'm, you know, uh, I started out as an embryo, like we all do, and then started dividing in Wisconsin, in this case in Wisconsin, and um, born and raised Racine, Wisconsin. I got interested in genetics from a very young age, uh, in particular uh, in about eighth grade, because I was and still am uh, endlessly and pleasantly fascinated and even haunted uh, by the fact that, you know, the molecular recipe for the synthesis of all of our cells is present in that first cell. But we're still to this day learning about all the sort of gears and mechanisms that make that one cell become all cells, that genetic and epigenetic changes where it's not just the DNA, but the controlling of that DNA and its function, the epigenetic states is what that is. It's something we're still learning about every day in my lab now uh, when I was a kid. But when I first learned that fact, they're like, oh, it's extraordinary that uh, the instructions are they're just all there. We just need to better understand them. That's one of the key points of genetics is just how do you go from that ball of information into a complete organism? 
and uh, and I love the I just love it. I, I just I want to know how that happens. In what context does it go wrong? How do we better uh, you know uh, understand it, and then even maybe modify it so we could have organisms do different things. The obviously, if you look around Earth, there's so many interesting adaptations that many have noted for thousands of years, including you know Aristotle and Darwin. Mm. But we're finally at the stage where we can genetically map what they are, and maybe even start to think about you know new ways to to learn from them, basically even use them directly. So um, well, so that's, that's how it started. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing is that you don't just look at that incredible instruction manual uh, f- for life and, you know, wonder at it. You, you you went from wondering at it to thinking, I think we might be able to change that a little bit and make it better. And, and we'll obviously we'll get into some of those applications, um, both kind of on Earth, uh, but also for for you know, future space travel. And it's interesting, depending on when you your book came out or when you were making these arguments that you've been making for a while now, the how kind of crazy it seemed is very very contextual so you know, as we're recording this there are you know, helicopters flying on mars and five years ago uh your book would have seemed you know perhaps a little bit more out there than it it does now but so in that sense do you feel as if you're we'll get into the details of your proposals in a minute but that just this idea of spreading out to mars and then kind of beyond is is seen um, more ser- taken more seriously today than it perhaps would have been even five ten years ago a hundred percent, even a hundred beyond hundred. Like it's not just a hundred percent more viewed as re- you know essentially relevant or even uh, realistic. It's really you know orders of magnitude different from where we were at um, even five years ago. Just because it it really the the ability to do uh, some of the things I describe in the book and that we do in our lab has just really catapulted forward at an exponential scale. So, uh, for example, just finding genes has gone up at an exponential pace in the last 20 years. Finding exoplanets, there were no real exoplanets until the 1990s, and then there were only a handful. You know, now there's thousands, right? So, and, and many more likely coming. So a lot of the ideas have, have really uh, were seeming possible, and also the, obviously the progress that NASA and other groups have made have made a lot of these, uh, you know, medical realities, uh, something actually we can, we can bank on and learn from and, and plan for future ones. So... Yeah, but I would actually argue I've, I've been saying the same thing since I was about 17. So my, my scientific goals have really stayed the same since I was a kid. It's just now people take me seriously. But um, so the, world, uh, it's really yeah, the, the world has caught up with you in a way. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so but you're right, this explosion of kind of interior knowledge of our genes and then exterior knowledge of the universe, more brilliant. So the universe within and, and without, I think is fascinating. And um, I'm going to get into some of the substance, particularly of the duty to go just in a moment but there's one bit one bit in your uh in your book which on which congratulations by the way it's just a a really kind of kaleidoscopic uh tour through science and all uh space and and it's a really thoroughly recommend it um so what i want to do is um i want to talk about uh, your book and your kind of plan in three different phases if we can why first is like the why 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 do we need to go beyond the planet beyond solar solar system then when so what's the timing of it you have a 500 year plan i want to talk a bit about you know what's the time scale here for the when and then part three will be how and then we'll get into some of your ideas about how we could perhaps genetically engineer astronauts and so on and then if if time and just a, a little bit on the kind of genetic ethics more generally just for kind of earthlings like right now which you also touch on uh, in a very interesting way so um first of all like, i want to i do want to start with the why because i think that's in some ways kind of most interesting to me and a part of the part of the the book the duty you say that 
we have a, a duty to go. You say we have extinction awareness. We're the first to kind of know that we're going to be extinct. And that that means that's why we should go. It's, it's very different in field to some of the other. Sometimes people argue that we should go because we're explorers or because it's we're innately, you know, then it's kind of mystical kind of stuff. Yours is like, no, no, we have a duty to go. You actually even have a term for it, which is deontogenetic. Deontogenics. How do I say it? Deontogenics, yeah. Um, so to say a little bit about what you mean by that and why you think that just because we know extinction's coming, that gives us not just that it would be fun to go, but we need, we must go. Must go. Yeah, so I, I try to propose in this book a essentially a new kind of ethic, which is, and which, you know, a lot of ethics underscore what are your duties in life. And so, and, and it's it's something that's generally very boring for people. You think about what are my duties when you wake up in the morning, you take a shower. Uh, there are things that you don't you don't think of duty and get necessarily excited about. It might be like it's just something I'm supposed to do. It's like you think of duty to your children if you have children, duty to country. It could be duty to your a, a job. It, not necessarily everyone ha- feels that, but you have a sense that there's something you're supposed to be doing. That you um, are either you know essentially this is something that has been ordained through uh, society or something that you just personally feel. But I argue that there is a duty that's for our species that is unique because we're the only ones that know it, as you just said, that there's this thing called extinction. Of course, all organisms can feel, it seems, some resistance to uh, negative stimuli, like even a you know, small E. coli avoids negative stimuli or can even feel pain. You could argue a lot of animals feel suffering that have higher cognitive abilities, so they can even remember their pain. But no species that we know of has this sense of understanding the, not just death, but extinction, and not even multi-generational death, which some animals even respond to, but at, at the scale of all species of, you know, of that type. So all, anim- all members of that species. So I think what that means is we're the only ones, again, as far as we know, there could be some aliens. That'd be great if they know as well, and we get to that later in the book. Mm-hmm. But as far as we know, we're the only ones. And as soon as you realize that, it is something that gives a, a duty because if you, it, it's akin to seeing a train coming that would kill, a, a, you know, 20 people. And if you just stood there and did nothing, we would view that as unethical. We view that as, as a wrong thing if you could pull a switch and stop the death of people when you can see it coming directly at you. Uh, you, to do nothing, we would, everyone would argue would be unethical. And I think the same thing is true here, uh, essentially, of the ethics towards preserving humans and even all other organisms on life. But I go a little bit further than what's just uh, stopping a train crash, right? So that Because a train crash, again, would just kill a few people. It's like that for not just a few people, but for all of us, because eventually, if we stay on Earth, even if we have world peace forever, uh, eventually the Earth is not cannot be our final home, uh, just because the sun will run out of fuel eventually and get too large. So... So we we know it's finite. It's a long ways away. It's billions of years. Yes, but, we're gonna get, we're gonna get to right, the so we'll get, timing. We'll get to the. the but hold the on, can I just d- d- let me just yeah. pause? Uh, uh, let me just test that analogy a little bit because uh, the train analogy, train you know, heading for it, that's probably something a bit more equivalent to an asteroid heading heading for Earth, right? Which we know is going to wipe out humanity and deciding, even though we could divert the asteroid, not to right. Um, uh, that's very different to saying there are twenty people. You know, who are just going to die a natural death, right? Um, this does not, yeah. yeah. And then we can argue about kind of what nat- natural is. So, is, is I mean, in the end, yes, it'll it'll end. But it feels to me a little bit more like okay, if there's an asteroid coming Earth, we'd do something about it because it was imminent for one thing about the timing. Right, right. Um, how do you respond right. to that that critique? Yeah, the critique that you know, the, the, yeah, while that's true, it's too far away, or. Or that it's, um, or you know, that I won't have to worry about it is the most common response. Like, well, that's or it's part, it's part of the natural. It's part of the natural order of things. Yeah. So I think what is uh, you know natural. I think it, part of the natural order of things has that is created. You know, if nature and sort of preservation of nature 
is is an ethic that people have. I, I guess I'd have two responses. One is that if preserving nature is what you want, nature has already created a species that can be aware of extinction. So if you want to preserve that, uh, then you have to preserve humans and anything that might be like them and even encourage that in other species. Uh, and the second is that, you know, this would be in, in a long enough time span, uh, it, it will, it, you know, essentially, it's not just one species, it's all species. So and that, that analogy is just a few people of one species, but the difference here is not just of, of type, but also of scale. So it's like, not just a few members of species, but all species and not just, you know, in this one time for a threat, it's like a, a obliteration of all of them. And I think the, and, and life might not emerge again, right? So as far as we know, it hasn't, maybe it's out there somewhere, we'll find it. Life, uh, the argument here is that life itself is unique, and in particular, life that has the capacity to guard other life forms, as far as we know, is completely unique. And I think, though, uh, I think life is worth preserving. It's one of the few things that counteracts entropy in the universe that may be in gravity. So it is, to our knowledge, this extraordinarily unique facet that the universe, that, that exists in the universe, that may not come again, may has only existed here, as far as we know it has. So I think it's worth preserving uh, just on its uniqueness. So alone, you, that's partly why you extend it to include other animals as, as well. This is not just a species, not a form of speciesism, as Peter Singer would, would put it. And I think you might even uh, quote Singer at one point uh, in the book. But there's still this sense of like, if the analogy is, is with a kind of human becoming aware of death, right? So it's one of the things that distinguishes us is our awareness of our own death as individuals. And arguably, yeah. you know, a whole lot of, a lot of faith and you know ways of dealing with the ways of dealing with the self-consciousness of our own demise uh, is a part of the human condition and i think a lot of people would say that the solution is to find ways to make peace with that uh, and to be okay with that rather than fight it and so uh, if we extend that analogy out then to kind of uh, humanity and other species the equivalent would be to say you know don't don't fight it. It's a bit. You, you're you're a bit like one of these. I mean, I'll be unfair, but it's like one of these Silicon Valley types who just can't bear the thought that they're going to die, so they kind of get their brain frozen and get AI uploads right, or whatever. Right. Because the, sure. the the idea of death is so terrifying to them, and you're sort of take potentially taking that on a kind of species wide level, and you know, and saying rather than come to terms with our demise in maybe five billion years or whatever, we should fight against it. It's a good, it's a good question. So and, and there I think I uh, I'm I'm very I'm very much planning on dying and the relatively near future. So I will be dead for the vast majority of the planets in the. Book. Wow, this took a uh, dark turn from yoga. <laughs> but, well, no, please, but, not but soon. It's very, you know, and I've met and I've had right. really heated arguments with people in Silicon Valley. I'd hate to pick on Silicon Valley, but that seems to be the place where you're most likely to meet people in person who will just tell you to your face, I plan on living forever. And they're not kidding. Or people that will tell you, I plan to live 200 years. And they're also not kidding. To all of them, I say, good luck. I hope you do. I don't think you will. I really would love it if you did. I wish that the technology and our knowledge of medicine uh, was really at that scale that we could project that. But I think it's it's fallacious thinking because it has never happened. Nothing even close to that's happened. And, and a counter argument there, some people might make as well. But you know, the Wright brothers, people said, you know, no one could fly, and then they managed to fly. And I say, no, no, that's not true. Birds were flying, you know, all around us, right? So we know flight is possible. Uh, and so I think they're saying we, there's no organism we know that is uh, that is eternal, uh, except for deities, perhaps. But so I, I think you know the first thing is I'd say is I agree, and and I think actually. One of the you know key points of developing as a person is recognizing your mortality and not fighting it, but accepting it, uh, because that's actually uh, emancipates you to understand what else can I do for something outside of myself. And so that's actually one of the most liberating senses you can have is is your own mortality. At least I would argue. 
But if you think about it, is we actually can think not just about what can I do for my, what not for myself, but it's the next generation or five or seven or, or hundreds of generations down the line. My goal is not to prevent, you know, to, to take the analogy of like, why aren't you just trying to present, prevent something that's natural? Uh, to, if anything, there's been billions of years of life on this planet. I think the, that, and it's the first time evolution can actually direct itself. It's the first time matter can organize in this context. It's life is very unique. I, I argue it would be unnatural uh, to have, as far as we know, the this very unique aspect of the universe die off because there's no guarantee it'll happen again. I think what people consider natural about death is that they know it's coming again. If you ask people, uh, would you be okay with all of life forever being extinguished? I think that's a different. Again, it's a different of type. It's not just it's dying because there's more coming. It, it would be the, uh, everything dying. And, mm-hmm. and even there, someone could say, well, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, like, maybe life isn't that special. Like, And so I have a part in the book, I even talk about that, that you have to be matter agnostic towards this capacity. Like, this be an idea to understand what life is. It doesn't have to be carbon-based. doesn't have to be just AI. It could be some other machine. Any entity that has awareness of extinction, I think, has this duty. So I have a whole section towards the end that I say I'm you just matter agnostic uh, towards cognition, towards whether it's a machine or, or it's a, you know, meat that's making the, the thoughts. Any of them have this, I think, ability to understand extinction and then to serve as a guardian. It's basically a new part of ecosystems is the guardian. So, I mean, you do make the point that it could be AIs that that continue it. And and actually, I'm, I'm probably going to reverse my position of just a few minutes ago, because I think one of, if you said to people, okay, so you come to terms of your own death, how would you then feel if everybody else in the world died the day after you died you 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 died right and i think most people would be uncomfortable with that idea but it's irrational in some way so once you're dead why does it matter and i think it's because there is a sense of being part of a continuity and i've i've always thought that there's this kind of real distinction in mindset between uh john maynard Keynes famously said in the long run we're all dead and as someone said about him only someone without kids could have said that because he didn't know oh, okay. and on the other hand there's this sort of idea in i think certain um uh, uh native american tribes which is that every decision you make you should consider it its impact over seven, seven generations right and yeah, so yeah. i've always thought the kind of seven generation versus canes speaks to this idea of kind of continuity so maybe actually it is the fact that we are part of an ongoing chain of life that helps us be aware of our own okay with our own individual death which would then speak to the fact well if that's true don't we then have a duty a you know deontological duty to to kind of keep that going all all the way through yeah and and part of the argument here is it's not because there's many ethical frameworks that you could you could kind of hang this idea on but i propose a new one because the ability to just exist precedes any other ethical or priority framework like if you don't exist you can't have any priorities and so the, the genetic duty I refer to, the deontogenic, is that, you know, the, the what is the, the duty of organisms, of DNA in this case, but again, it could be other kinds of matter, but that the genetic duty is that we have, at least as humans, this unique understanding of, of the frailty of life, its diversity, we're the only ones that um, currently can protect it, right? Of course, we can destroy it, and we're good at doing uh, that as well, unfortunately, but we're the only ones with the capacity for protection at that scale and at that time frame, and so I think... Uh, and that is what's required for anything else that you value or treasure in life is to just exist. And so I, I put it before everything else because by definition it has to be. Existence comes before essence, I think, is something yeah. that I thought. There's actually a very strongly theological 
feel to much of your argumentation actually but maybe, maybe we'll kind of come back to that but i want to move on to next slide when we must go so I, I realize i'm doing this sort of or probably in the reverse order to how many of your conversations go but sort of so, so like let's agree what why we must go leave the planet because it's going to get destroyed at some point then there's a kind of when and so uh, you've got this 500 year plan and my first thought was wow that's that's a long time you know the chinese government put out a 100 year plan in 2019 and it got lots of attention it was like you're right you're like oh, that's that's nothing uh, <laughs> and i must say when i started on it i thought 500 years was a really long really really long time but i will say that now having really thought this through i wonder if it isn't a bit of an unseemly hurry um because you say you, you say in the book you point out that mercury venus earth and mars will all be charred to a cinder right it's very kind of evocative and you're like suddenly you're sitting up a bit straighter reading reading the book but in five billion <laughs> years right there's yes, yes, there's actually yes. this joke about a student half asleep in an astronomy class when the professor says and we'll all will all be burned to in five billion years and the student says wait wait how, when what is it five billion he said thank god i thought i thought you said five million said five <laughs> you're right, uh, if right. I, and it's like okay um and actually so I, I i've done a bit of math here and it's not my strongest suit so you might be able to help me out but but on my calculation the average lifespan of a human is about two and a half billion seconds that means that 500 years is the equivalent of about half a second in the average lifespan of a human right so you're saying that because i'm going to die well, in whatever eight years i've got half a second to deal with it so that's the sort of time scale you're talking about so it's actually quite a serious question then is what's the big hurry okay so yes at some point unless we do something bad or an asteroid hits us maybe we can talk about that right but we've got quite a lot of time to get ready for this and so you know why are you pushing it so hard why why as quickly as 500 years you know why get to mars why be living on mars in 2030 2040 and then titan and then like it feels like farther it feels like you're in a bit too much of a hurry. Uh, well, I am because I think the frailty is evident by the the fossil record of the frailty of life. It, it could be another asteroid that hits us, and that could be a hundred years, thousands of years. It could be a decade. Uh, we know those. It's going to be hard for us to survive that. Not impossible, but would be difficult. And so, some of the hurries of of the unknown of the universe that, uh, as we've just seen with the recent you know plague around Earth, you know, you know, essentially. You know, parts of New York City even lost almost 1% of their population from COVID, for example. So we know, you know, uh, being an organism in this universe can have its uh, rough and tumble stages, whether it's from asteroids or diseases or plagues. Um, but I think the other reason to hurry is, well, I, I wouldn't even argue it's hurrying. It's just that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like we can solve all the other problems of, of poverty and, and other injustices uh, and other challenges sociologically, as well as doing the exploration. Because, well, I think the reasons are, one, obviously we want to make sure we don't have some other calamity kill us before we get too far. The second is, I think it's not it's not either or. We can do both. Uh, we can solve large-scale structural and sociological problems, as well as explore nearby planets. Uh, and I think it will learn a lot more by doing, like actually the process of going, you know, if we just had all these models on Earth and we did simulated microgravity, we would never be able to model what we ha what we saw, for example, in the Kelly study, what happens actually in the body in space. I think I'm a big proponent of just learning a lot by doing, and that's where you generally, I, I find in life, you learn the most. It's um, You can't do it blindly, of course, but uh, going out there, I think we'll learn a lot. And the last thing I'll say is that uh, it's five billion years, really, until the sun has completely eaten up the inner planets. But the Earth will really become pretty uninhabitable in about one billion years. So it's really about one-fifth of that time frame, which actually when I was writing the last chapter of the book, 
I got a bit anxious because in my head for years, I'd always thought, well, we've got 4.7 or 5 billion years. It's a long time away. But over the course of updating the research, uh, because the sun's luminescence will get that much brighter, the Earth will just get too hot at that point. It'll be like for anyone who's worried about climate change, 1 billion years is about the number they should really be afraid of. Because no matter what we do to maintain homeostasis of the atmosphere, it's just not going to be possible at that bright of a luminescent sun, probably in about a billion years. And so I actually, I mean, in my own writing, I got I got this sense of palpable fear, like, Oh crap! I you know I just thought I, I suddenly had one. It was as if as, you just as lost as four billion years. Yes, yes, I did. So it's as if I, I I felt like the pain of of the whole of all species. Like oh, I thought we had more time. I actually came downstairs. I finished the book and I was telling my wife and. I was like, I just thought we had more time. And she said the same thing. She's like, well, it's still a long time. But I, it, it's a big difference. So I mean, you're it, right. I, I think I'm with, you, I'm with your wife on this. If you think about a billion years compared to whatever it is, I don't know, the 10,000 years that we've actually amounted to anything suggests that we've got a bit of a runway. But uh, as you say, there is a possibility of something happening much sooner than that. And so there's, a, there's sort of... You could plan, you can hope for the long term, but maybe plan for for the short term and get ready. And in any case, we're doing. That. I also I do agree with you that it's a false choice that's very often made between why spend all our money on this rather than something else. I, I mean, I hate those kind of false choices, right? You it's like well, you can't. You it's a choice. We can we can do both. And obviously, the Mars thing is happening kind of quite quite quickly now. Um, and uh, and I think, well, potentially quite quickly anyway. It's very interesting. You have this beautiful description of what Mars will be like, though. It speaks a bit to, your, to the difference between reading you and, and other people, which is for a lot of people, the idea that we're going to have people on Mars pretty soon, maybe even kind of within our lifetimes, um, is just incredible. Uh, and wow, wouldn't that be amazing? That's kind of as far as they go. You have this wonderful description of Mars. You say, going to Mars will be humanity's version of going to college leaving the house you grew up in, traveling just out of reach of your parents' ability to instantly help you, testing your limits, boundaries, having some fun, learning a lot, and likely getting into trouble. So this is a great analogy where you think, yeah, Mars is like, <laughs> and then we've got to kind of uh, move on and so on uh, to, uh, to other planets too. But nonetheless, that would be in and of itself just this kind of huge achievement to have. I mean, a permanent settlement on Mars seems like like the stuff of science fiction right now. Yeah, and it would be, I mean, some, some people also call it that it's like, it's plan plan B, but I always like to say, no, it's, it's plan A, actually. Plan A is like, it gives you, plan A is just survival, right? So if you're on two planets, your odds of survival are just much better. So, uh, and I don't want to, le- you know, leave the cradle of humanity of Earth. It is, a phen- it'll almost certainly be the best planet we'll know to live on for the foreseeable future. So, uh, you know, I, 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 it's never about having a backup plan or leaving Earth or, you know, exhausting Earth's resources and, and moving on. It's really about uh, plan A's uh, being in more than one place. Yeah, Earth is going to continue to have significant benefits for humans. Uh, we'll get on to how humans might change compared to any planet, including Mars, uh, for for the foreseeable future. But I also kind of wonder about this as a bit of a a bit of a swerve but the geopolitics of this kind of future world so as a bit of a sci-fi fan myself you know i spent time like watching and reading the expanse for example so i'd like to just i don't think you get into this in the book actually but the idea of kind of what geopolitics might look like or maybe it's not geopolitics as i don't know plano politics or solo politics something like that because i actually read this and thought it's like it's almost like you haven't even watched the expanse uh, and the so, kind of uh, w- war between yeah. Mars and Earth, and, then, and also why don't you go? Why don't you want us to go to the asteroid belt? Because you know the belters are you know seeing that you ignore the asteroid belt, and so I have lots of questions for you about how it's going to be different to the expanse. 
A great question. So, I, I mean, the simplest one is I didn't read the books or watch the series until after I'd finished this book. So, it, so it's true. It I hadn't. Uh, but what actually, what's interesting is watching that series, which of course I find fascinating and wonderful and love the show and the books, is how, I mean, I actually find the show fascinating, but also, you know, in some, ones, in some sense depressing because of how at that in that show we've managed to you know have people settlements on on Mars and in asteroids we're exploring the outer planets of the solar system like extraordinary technological innovation that enables humans to really you know pop, pop around through the solar system eventually farther uh, although I won't, don't no spoilers for anyone in the book but that's kind of in page one and what ends up happening is that it's just as you know just as as much infighting and tribalism and paranoia that exists today geopolitically exists at a solar system level in that series. And I find it, it's probably correct. I actually think, you know, I, I, as much as I would like it for everyone to work together and, and share methods and tools and humanity to have this kumbaya moment, we've never done it before, right? So why would I think that just because we end up in different uh, spaces that, that we would? But I do at least have some geopolitical leanings in there. I describe that if we do have people on the moon or on Mars, we should plan for not hope against it but plan that they will eventually want to and, and should become autonomous like as, as has always happened like rather than trying to fight against it and view it as a colonial enterprise we should enable uh you know democratization self-governance very much like un charter principles because even if we don't do it it'll happen through blood if it doesn't happen through so uh, build in that kind of yeah. independence sort of from the, from the outset good okay well but, but with independence yeah might come fighting so uh, you know it, i think the expanse unfortunately might be right in its view of what might happen in that future so you think it's pretty realistic politically what about the science because i mean there's this whole thing about how they kind of create a new drive and then how mars works and so on do you do you watch that um series as a as a scientist with kind of quite a knowledge of it kind of rolling your eyes um, not, or, or did, or did you think ah, it's not too bad? It was, some of it was really spot on. Actually, in one of the early scenes in books is this idea of gravity torture that becomes outlawed is that if you have people who've grown up with very low gravity and you bring them back to earth and you just mm. torture them by being in gravity, uh, that it became you know illegal to do so. It was an interesting concept that uh, because your body had adapted to something completely different, if you bring it to earth, it's, it's completely painful and awful. And then eventually you'll die from it. You know, a really awful, it sounds like a way to, to die, frankly. So the, the the fact that it had already been thought about, tried, and then outlawed by the time you get to reading the book and seeing the series is such a cool, um, uh, a likely progression of, of one, what would happen to the body when it's you know developing other places, and second, what might happen legally. But the thing that's missing from that book, and I describe a lot, of course, in my book, is what are the ways you can modify genomes, cells, tissues to give new features? Because uh, the, thing, the only thing that's missing from the expanse, I, I mean, I could be other things. The only thing, at least from my perspective, that was really... Um, uh, uh, and well, in some sense it's there, in some sense it's not. But that I think there would be ways to do different adaptations. Like for example, when they go to really fast uh, uh, sort of sublight travel, they have to have sort of that juice that keeps their mm-hmm. body from having a heart attack, and that doesn't always work, uh, as we found out in the last season. Yeah. Uh, but but you know, so there there are some threads where that show that clearly you need adaptations to survive space flight, space you know uh, landing on different planets. That it's not easy on the body. But I would hope that if it's been thousands of years, that we'll have better tools than just a few like adrenaline pumps and some you know some tissue regeneration. I, I think it might be better by then. I would hope. Yeah, they haven't they haven't done anything to the genome at that point. They haven't done any of the the stuff you, you talk about. Was well, that's a great actually uh, great link to the next which is, which is the kind of how we go bit, which is. We've done the why and we've done the when, which is how. And you have this line where you say, to save life, we will need to engineer it. Engineer it. 
And you've also said elsewhere we should be building armor on the inside, particularly for astronauts, and to kind of engineer engineering ourselves kind of for the for the future. And some of that's actually based on the work you did. You've mentioned Scott Kelly already, but um, uh, and on the work that you did there. And there's a great description of you know the changes um, that you, you should probably just if you could just explain a little bit about you know who Scott is and what that work was. Um, um, but also kind of specifically on the genomic, in terms of the genome, the genetic, what did we learn that made you think that we should be thinking about this genetics from the kind of Kelly experiment? Yeah, that's, so some background on that study is where there was a, a really interesting opportunity NASA announced about six years ago that said, okay, Scott Kelly's going into space for a year-long mission. By the way, he has an identical twin brother, Mark Kelly, who's actually now Senator Kelly. And we want, we're just taking proposals. So people, if you have an idea of studies you should do, uh, send us a proposal What's interesting is I had actually already sent NASA a proposal when I started my lab in 2010 to do genetic and, and microbiome and epigenetic characterization of astronauts because it had never been done. And I was just curious. I'm a geneticist. I'm interested in, in space biology. I thought, well, we should propose it. But then um, I still have the original letter. They said, well, we don't really have a samples bank that you're proposing because I wanted sorted different cell populations like t you know biopsies. They had some urine banked and some blood, but not much. And said, well, we, you know, we don't even have the, the tissues you're looking for. Uh, but but stay tuned. We may have a solicitation coming soon that, that would be more relevant. And then it came out. And I said, okay, right, I've already got this whole thing written. So it's very easy. A lot of times you submit a grant, you don't know. Uh, it might have a few weeks or a month to write it, but I had it all done. So it was really easy to send in. And then it, we were selected as one of the 10 different teams uh, chosen. And we were my, my lab was one of the teams at Cornell, which was focusing a lot on the genetics, uh, so the DNA and also the RNA, how the genes expression changes. So you're looking at what happens to the body. And did basically a genetic report for the astronauts to see, okay, well, what happens before flight? What happens when you're in flight? And what happens afterward and, and tracking them long term? And so what we learned in the study, and this is, you know, a representative work of many teams. There was someone focusing on the eyeballs and looking at what someone focusing on the vasculature, the heart. One uh, uh, one focused just on cognition. So Matthias Bosner at UPenn, you know, just taking cognitive tests in space. So really a, really a complete physiological and molecular portrait of the body. But a lot of it was first done as a, a big, you know, exploratory exercise, because clearly we don't have a big sample size. We've got two people, one in space, one on Earth. It's great that they're identical twins, but it's not like a giantly statistically powered twin study. <laughs> but what we did, what we lacked in numbers, we made up for in sampling routines. So we did actually hundreds of samples over the course of two and a half years. So about every five to six weeks, we took did blood, urine, saliva, did stool sampling, did a complete metabolomic profile, look at basically everything we could, so changes in skin microbiome. This uh, is a both of them. This is, this is a both, yeah, both yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And it was actually interesting is for a little while during the study. So we the goal, so the goal of the study was to figure out, okay, what happens when you're in this space for a year? Mm -hmm. uh, there'd never been a year-long mission for NASA. The Russians had had four people up there that had gotten at least that, that long, but there was no molecular data on them at all, uh, and certainly none that we could access at least. Uh, so we, we, we thought, okay, if we don't know, I like to think of, if you don't know where to look for a scientific question, because, because we don't know what part of the body would be the most impacted by urine space, um, you know, any of those things I just listed. So I always think if you don't know where to look for a scientific question, the best place to look is everywhere that you possibly can, because if you don't know where you're going to look for signal, measure all the signals you can, and then analyze the data afterward and say, aha, that's what changed the most. This is what is the most plastic feature of our biology. And these are the ones that we can kind of keep an eye on for future missions. So he went up uh, basically in 2015 for a year, spent a year in space. It was actually a phenomenal year because he'd be tweeting his pictures from space and like, here's what's looking outside my window. And I'd be getting blood samples from space coming into the labs like, oh, that's my test subject. He's up there in space tweeting these beautiful pictures. Uh, I've done other work with Scott since, which I'll describe shortly. But it was a really fun year. And then he came back and then we did a follow up for another uh, basically year and a half after he came back to Earth. 
and and basically wanted to see what what changed. So some things were really wait, striking. Wait, wait, sorry, example, sorry to interrupt you. How are you getting his blood samples from space? Yeah, so this is so we we took two kinds of samples. Some were who would draw blood or collect say stool samples or saliva samples and put them in the freezer. There's a big freezer on the space station. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called the Malfi, and then and then other ones that we get. It's called an ambient blood draw, which NASA has protocols for this. But this was the first time it was used for any of these kind of studies, which was essentially do a quick blood draw and they'll often draw blood themselves, but sometimes I've helped basically, you know, put the cap on, you know, put it on a uh, freezer, uh, cold packs to keep it cold, drop it in the Soyuz capsule, close the hatch, it drops back, lands in Kazakhstan, gets picked up by a helicopter, then repatriated, which is a verb I had not used until the study, you know, brought back to Houston. So we could actually get samples of blood that were, that were just in space within about 35 hours. Uh, but it's wow. a complete end to end process. Faster than I get, that's faster than I get my, my blood test results. Thirty-six hours, but the but, but yeah. with help from Sawyer's and the and the Russians. Oh yes, oh yeah, okay. yeah. It, it, and what's it interesting? Was, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of help. I did not know. I'm glad I asked that question now because I now got this very vivid image of what happened to Scott's blood. Um, the so there's lots of fascinating stuff that happens. You know, he gets point one second younger, he gets taller, you know, uh, and all that stuff. Um, the thing I'm kind of really interested in, because I think this gets us then into the case for genetically engineering astronauts for different kind of environments, is what did you see, uh, particularly in terms of the genome, and I guess the microbiome, that made that, that made you think just from from that year that there was there was the possibility. I mean, did did his DNA change? Did his RNA change? We saw thousands of changes, if you look at the genetic level, in terms of what genes get turned on or turned off in response to spaceflight. Most of them involved genes that you actually would expect. If you're, being, uh, if you're getting a little bit more r- radiation, you would expect to need a bit more enzymes and, and sort of activity in your cells to repair the damage to DNA. So we could see DNA repair systems and, and networks activated. And to be clear, he's getting, he getting a lot more radiation. Right? He's getting the equivalent of four X-rays every day. Yeah, four or five chest X-rays every day, basically. So, you know, and that's not, uh, you know, it's still sublethal. Obviously, he made it back. But it is, you know, uh, we try to avoid X-rays, you know, here on Earth. So you don't want to go as much as, more, any more than you need to. So, uh, it, it, but it is still within the, what's called the Van Allen belt. So it's still within kind of the protective magnetosphere of the Earth. So it's, it's higher, but it'll be much worse going to Mars for sure. And we'll probably come back to that. But the uh, but we could see see the radiation. We could see his immune system also respond. Uh, essentially, a lot of the activity for the, the immune system learning. There's really this entirely new environment, uh, but also a very tight and closed environment. And a lot of genes uh, also just dealing with, we saw some for telomere regulation. So his telomeres got longer in space, which normally is a sign of being young. And then, But it came back down when he got back to Earth. And we could see all of this in the RNA data as well. And so it seems like the stress of spaceflight it really, you know, uh, had both in some sense a uh, stressful response in the body, so inflammation markers and changes where the body looks like, actually in some cases almost looked like he had some of the signatures of COVID-19 in space because of the inflammation markers, except there it was only a matter of a day or two spiking, whereas for COVID patients it stays persistent for weeks or months. And we, we could also see that, you know, something's coming out in his urine, for example, we could see uh, damaged bases of DNA coming out in his urine. You could even see fragments of calcium, so you could actually... You know, he said in his book when he wrote about the year-long mission that if he didn't work out for a day, you know, it could almost feel like sort of the his bone loss occurring where it just felt like, you know, he really needed to keep the pressure on the bones because, of course, we've evolved under gravity, so our bones are kind of expecting that. And if they don't, they quickly atrophy, as most of us know. And so, but we can see all this in the molecular data. We can see his body changing, adapting, responding. We can see, you know, br- uh, fragments of broken DNA and damaged DNA coming out in his urine. So we could see all these things, you know, you know and, but then when he, it was even more striking than when he got back to Earth 
is that there, you know, essentially, you know, after we got all these samples collected, we were tracking him the day he got landed and days after his ankle swelled up to the size of basketballs. And he really was in a lot of pain, you know, really almost uh, didn't want to wear clothes because even just the weight of clothing on his skin irritated him, gave his skin a rash because it had been a year since just this clothes touched his skin in any normal way with gravity. Mm-hmm. So he uh, almost had to uh, wander around, you know, was thinking about maybe just have to walk around nude for the house, which is, you know, some people do that recreationally. He had to do it for medical purposes. No judgment. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right so, certainly um, not from someone who puts yogurt on themselves. You kind of... No judgment. I thought that was all fascinating. And I think that obviously there's this physical aspect to it. And in a way, there's sort of... You talked about the kind of gravity torture in, in The Expanse um, before, right? Just kind of moving from one physical environment to the other. I was fascinated to see you can see in the genome, you can actually see in the DNA and so on, what that means. So in terms of so looking forward uh going to mars there is this massive radiation spike as you talk about outside the magnetosphere right? nothing i mean way way more than anything that scott um has endured and so you can build radiation shields you can try and build all of the stuff you know to try and shield but your point is this armor on the inside is to say so is there a way we could radiation proof humans by adapting their genetic code is that am i is that's basically what would that look what would that look like and how close do you think that kind of change realistically is i i think it is probably still 30 or 40 or, or 50 years away to have it be clinically deployed uh certainly also be deployed for astronauts but to be but there's so many things we can learn before that point and along that, that along the way so the reason i think it's going to take that long is because if you actually do what's called germline genetic editing. We're actually changing, uh, you know, all the DNA in the cells, and that means it propagates them to the next generations. That is a really large undertaking for, for well, for any organisms, uh, but especially humans, because what if we do it wrong, right? Of course, we, the hubris behind that is, is, um, is large, but it doesn't uh, obviate its necessity, is that, you know, if we uh, really, you know, if we do it right, it could be essentially enable a new kind of liberty. It enables what I describe in the book as planetary or cellular liberty. Like mm. if you do it right, you've you've enabled someone to live in two planets instead of one, for example. So I, I think I view it very much along the lines of not just the duty for survival. The duty also underscores a capacity to increase uh, cellular and planetary liberty, which I don't think is a common thought. But I, I no, I've never come across it. the phrase cellular liberty before reading a book. But it's, <laughs> right, right. But it's a it's a fascinating it's a, it's, a, it's a slightly chilling idea. I will be kind of because because of this you know, the structure we put around this of kind of playing God, playing with nature, kind of et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, I applaud you for going for it. And you have lots of examples of what cellular liberty could be kind of liberate us from DNA and RNA that we've got now. Yeah. And, and from disease and from like reproductive uh, limitations or even there, you know, the idea of having, I describe a lot of the technology for having, you know, that's been done in mice of uh, two females or two males having children together. And, and, you know, the liberty is not just for your own cells, but for cells if you want to have children and you want, how do you, you know, combine cells together in novel ways. Uh, but it, it is, I think, unsettling for most people because they're not used to thinking about like any cell or any gene from any species could be utilized for uh, purposes of survival or recreation uh, or reproduction. So it does put people into a place that is, I think, you know, it seems like it's alien or unusual, but it's actually, as I also describe a lot in the book, in, in immuno-oncology, it's already routinely utilized. We are There are hundreds of clinical trials with exquisitely engineered T-cells being infused into patients as we speak uh, that are you know dramatically engineered cells that are, are not at all fantasy or science fiction. They are clinically uh, being deployed. So I think 
uh, yeah. That, so that, it's that, nice if you go for yeah. kind of narrowly defined things going. But when you do, uh, I mean, at some point, I feel like almost you're trying to make us feel uncomfortable. You 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 talk about cellular liberty, but then you say that we could. Uh, we'll get to the point where there's seamless mixing and synthesis of genetic networks in easy, accurate, and cheap ways, akin to DJs mixing and making music with a beat sampler. So there's, yes, yes. All right, that's exactly th- right. That that's a, that's a very different feel to what you just said, which is from a very narrow, <laughs> specific focus Slow, on cancer patients, beautiful. right? Yes, which is yes. so there's a kind of um, uh, yeah, the expansiveness about your your vision um but to come back a little bit to this sense of like genetic um engineering it feels like to go to uh, to go even further than mars and elsewhere um that would absolutely be necessary and you give some examples and you kind of push the envelope right out to it would be great in low light to be able to improve our sight and actually you have examples of how we're already already doing that there is actually as part of my research this podcast i attempted to watch a movie called the titan I don't know if you've... Oh, yes, hit, yes, yeah. Right, yeah. which feels like it might be a bit influenced by your work because they attempt to genetically engineer an astronaut to survive on Titan. And, to survive on Titan, yes. I mean, I, I was you know, it doesn't, by some, yeah, it doesn't there, end well. Are they stealing your lab's ideas? Yeah, yeah. that's right. I mean, I, 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 expected to see you, I expected to see you in the credits. But it doesn't end very <laughs> no. well in that in that it movie ends awfully yeah mm. yeah um it ends except there is one person apparently living on titan by the end but it, it is not a yeah that, that that is not a promising tale uh or a it wasn't good tale for your all. argument was it <laughs> that, that, <laughs> no. but the good news is it was such a terrible movie that no nobody's <laughs> actually true. watched what watched what but but to go further than say mars or and starting to endure this kind of it uh, I, if I read you correctly, is that it'd certainly be a heck of a lot easier if we'd been able to make some genetic modifications, say, around radiation or et cetera, and maybe impossible, actually. And this comes back to your point about the expanse, is that you're looking at it and saying it feels very unlikely that we'd be able to do all those things with our existing genetic code. Probably yeah, we'd have to we make that- it. I, I think, yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to at least be open to the idea. Because, again, I put the time frame of, of broad implementation out decades because i think we need that long to really ensure safety and efficacy and have multiple generations i talk about in the book that we've seen two or three generations of studies on what happens if you actually truly modify a human genome with with exogenous elements and not just in a lab like in our lab we do this but like in people that are then reproducing living in the world it's basically a large-scale multi-generational clinical trial the likes of which have never been done but would have to be done in order to actually really successfully and safely deploy these kind of ideas uh, in the genome. The other option is we learn from other genomes and then add their proteins to our cells as therapeutics, which again, we do this all the time. We've learned from what bacteria or fungi fight other bacteria and make antibiotics, and then we use them. So like the idea of using other creatures' adaptations and toolboxes is something we do all the time for cancer therapies, for treating infectious disease, general, uh, like even other therapies that are just grown in, in cells at ma- at scale. So we we already use you know the the panoply of life's adaptations and toolboxes, molecular tools to help us live and avoid disease or cure disease. But um, now it's just about we'll keep doing that, but then eventually see what if what if we could actually safely and successfully have it be just an innate part of the genome, which is I think and the reason I think it's a duty is because when you're sending someone to a faraway planet. You, the, the options are, okay, I'll send you there, and we, we have these technologies that we think would, could protect you and keep give you that internal armor. But if you decide to not deploy them, you could argue it's unethical because you're putting someone at a higher risk than, say, the treatment might be, or this new idea of treatment, but the risk of death would be higher. So between weighing those two factors, you say, well, 
I know it's unusual, but I think the the worst risk to you, and thus the unethical action, would be to send you to a new planet with more radiation uh, without any of these adaptations. Sure. But, um, sure. To which one response might be, "Well, don't yeah. don't send them then." Um, yeah, right. And it seems to me that your uh, your uh, I, your analogy between life and you know, an individual life and thinking about extinction awareness really comes to life here because we're used to perhaps getting used to the idea of using genetic medicine to save a life. What you're saying is that we might need to do it to save life right. and yeah. not just in a, someone's going to die unless we do this way, but in a kind of much more proactive ways that we're all going to die in the long run, unless we do this. And if that, that means we have to genetically engineer our way to it, it's, it's different. If you think about the ethical decision for the individual astronaut, right, you could have the answer I just gave, which is, well, don't send them, right? No one's making us send people to Titan where they, you know, and it, or it's already incredibly dangerous, right? So, and if it's for exploration or fun or curiosity, that's one thing, which is, I think, what makes your argument a bit different is by elevating it to a duty, yeah. you change the moral calculus uh in, in an interesting way and i think in an in inevitable way this is it, it, you like once you assume that you you like humans and you'd like humans to survive uh if if you like that and there are some people who don't there's some people like i wish all humans were gone we've been a, a plague to the planet we've killed too many species there are some people who won't be convinced by these arguments because they think humans are just too risky of a species like we, we do too much damage like yes there's all this music and poetry and love and you know, all the all the benefits of humanity and exploration, uh, but you know that some people really are um, you know, misanthropes. They just don't even like humans. I don't know if I'll win them over, but I think you know on the supposition that humans are good, or at least good enough, uh, that we're worth preserving. It, it's just a question of time. I think all moral questions become crystal clear uh, through the lens of a billion years. Like you know, it, it's just there's only one thing to do. It's not it's not a it's not an opinion. It's just it's a cosmological fact. And so if you want humans to survive, survive you have to eventually go. And you, and you say to do so otherwise to do otherwise is a kind of form of species suicide and something which is kind of an interesting way. Let's do one more just to take us to what to the, to the next level because there's an interesting section where and I don't exactly know where in your 500 year plan this is, which is where we have to leave the solar system because as you say we're all going to be burnt to a crisp in. I don't know. I thought it was five billion, but as you say, getting closer all the time. But, <laughs> it suddenly but, got. To... I mean, by the time yeah. we end this podcast, I'll be looking out of the window in a concerned <laughs> way. Um, but assuming yeah. we have to go further, right? To so escape the solar system, and you talk about these kind of long range um, ships, and it's interesting what some of them you say you should put an animals in. It becomes a Noah's Ark feel to some of it too. Yes, but yeah. but but this idea of multi gen obviously isn't big in sci fi, but multi generation ships and you think that that's plausible now that we could actually think and ethical in fact to put people on uh ships that are gonna you know go for generation after generation could take many gen more than the seven generations of um of the indians i think you calculate that it would even on reasonable assumptions it's going to take 200 generations to get to yeah, alpha proxima so whatever talk a bit about how you think about those sorts of um those ships and why you think it's it's feasible to imagine that we could do that now, send people off and basically say to their children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, yep, you're going to live and die on this very small spaceship. And that's all you've got. And, and I think it, it is a bit terrifying to think of, like it, because for most people think, if I was born on a spacecraft and they said, oh, this is where you're going to be for your entire life, and it's only you know maybe 50 rooms lot wide and that's it. 
uh, it, that's not, that sounds like a prison more than a quest, right? So I think a lot of people think of that and think, well, that that sounds. Why would you ever do that? Uh, you know, even if I agree with your deontogenic uh, ethics and I think you have this duty, I feel it's still think it's too mean, for example. So I think it probably was fifty or even twenty years ago that that concept was was pretty unfathomable. But I think three things have made it more possible, and actually uh, not just you know possible, but even you know, really tractable. The three of them. One of them, we didn't even have any good exoplanets to send people to, you know, 20 years ago. There were, there were, we didn't know of any good ones, really. So it's like we, we, it was just fantasy at that point. Whereas now, we at least based on transit data, you know, transiting uh, information in front of the other suns, some decent candidates. And I, again, in the book, I think we should still study them for another probably 400 years before we send people. But but we're getting closer. To the, so one, we know planets we could send them to. Second is we have portable medical interventions and technologies where we could actually keep people, I think, alive and safe in a very small space uh, and wouldn't need an entire you know, larger sociological and medical infrastructure uh, just for keeping them alive and safe. And the third is just entertainment, like the idea of, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people would just watch everything on Netflix uh, and be, you know, not necessarily happy, but at least they could be somewhat satiated. And, you know, we, if you send people out, and I talk about this in the book, with the totality of all of human culture and experience, uh, they could never watch all of it. It'd be too big, but it would give them ways to have movie nights on this generation craft. Um, you know, they could uh, look at, you know, could have little uh, sports clubs, they could have, uh, uh, you know, cultural clubs, because they'd have everything we've ever indexed of all of human culture and literature and music with them, basically. So at least you give them the best of what they got to offer. And it wouldn't be one way. There'd still be back and forth exchange on their on their way. And the fourth thing I'll just comment on is the idea of being stuck on one spaceship and nowhere else to go is already true today. It's the spaceship is just called Earth, right? So we're st- we can't go to another planet right now. We have zero planetary liberty as a species right now. We're only here. Uh, and so, you know, it's really it's just a question of scale, not of yeah, but we are. On, true. It is. It's it a is. bigger. It's a bigger scale. It's quite <laughs> yeah. a big quite a big one um but yeah take a point plus also i think if that's all you you know if all you knew all you've known yeah then i think you know, to some extent you you look at this through the lens of you know our own perspective and that seems horrible but if that's that's literally all you ever knew, you, all you ever knew. and i think that i'm trying to think whichever you know because so much of your work of course kind of reminds people of of sci-fi there is you know there are like battlestar galactica maybe or or others where you know those multi-general you know ships are kind of in there but i want to come back down to earth now just as just as we come towards the end here to talk a bit about the the ethics around the use of you know genetic interventions uh now uh, or, or in the shorter term for nothing to do with astronauts or or space but just to kind of deal with some of the existing issues that we have and i worry a lot about how that will work in practice you really grapple at length with this and i think very fairly uh, in the book and you talk about the pros and cons of the ethics of this and i know that you've actually been professionally involved with some of the discussions around uh, the ethics of that so i'd love to talk a bit about that but specifically the thing that concerns me is what it will do for kind of class gaps or inequalities and i think you may kind of touch on this i've just finished um Ishiguro, Ishiguro's new novel clara and the sun and although he doesn't explain exactly how most of the kids are lifted quote unquote lifted and it's some sort of genetic uh procedure that they go through which, which improves their cognitive function they're the only ones that get into college so there are lifted kids and unlifted kids right and all parents have to decide whether they're going to lift them or not and if you take that idea of lifting as in some way improving your making you smarter or healthier or kind of whatever it's impossible to imagine in particular upper middle class american parents won't be lifting their kids altering their kids genetic code in utero or whatever so that they'll be kind of smarter and they'll be the ones who can afford it everyone else won't be able to afford it 
it'll 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 just make the existing divides even worse so that i know it's a long way from the way it's being used now but how do you think about the ethical deployment of these kinds of technologies both in defeating disease but also when we get to the upsides and how it can enhance us when it becomes a performance issue how do we guard against it just entrenching inequality it's a big danger but that's true with any technology and frankly every technology that's ever improved uh, human health uh, or the ability to have you could even argue like locomotive liberty the ability to like buy a car and drive anywhere you want or or just afford a ticket to get on a train or even to get on a ship when it was hundreds of years ago you know there's there's always been unfortunately a really clear stratification of whenever there's a new technology or a new enablement uh, there's there's um, stratification hierarchies that have really I think perpetuated racism perpetuated inequality uh, poverty and and I I'm hopeful that we'll have I think sociologically we're learning about that and people are becoming more aware of of how they deploy you know medical devices medical tools technologies some of them you know because some of this is just a consequence that uh, the medical infrastructure we have is tied into capitalism right so. Some things will be more expensive, and then only people that have the more the additional funds will, will buy them uh, because they're the only ones that can. And so, you know, to you know the, the the tactical deployment of technologies, I think I want to separate from the ethical you know use of them. Is that you know ideally you know ethically we would have them be perfectly deployed and accessible to everyone, and and that's true in some countries where they have a real centralized health system, uh, but even in there they have their own issues, right? So I, I think. You know, in a perfect world, the, the best technology would be available for anyone who needs it with any medical uh, requirement. But uh, to do that, we just need to restructure a bit of uh, how the, the the medical capitalistic infrastructure works, at least in the U.S. And and that's you know, it's not quite there yet. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, and it's very piecemeal. So I think I think unfortunately, what you propose will probably happen. Say say if you have, if you, have you know these lifting technologies or cognitive improvements. Um, I wish it wouldn't be true, but it'll probably be. It'll probably end because there is. I mean, there is a difference between the sorts of tech, the sort of locomotive liberty you just talked about, which and which is that it doesn't make you a different kind of person, doesn't make you a better or smarter person on the inside. Although I'm saying that and thinking, of course, all the educational advantages and travel advantages uh, and stimulation advantages that kind of my kids get actually is improving their cognition. And it's so kind of an advantage. It's yeah. Kind of, yeah. So I'm not kind of, I'm not doing anything to their genetic code directly, but actually it's interesting. Mike, Michael Young wrote the book, um, on meritocracy. He actually invented the mm-hmm. term meritocracy, yeah. um, and was fearful of it. And his son, Toby Young wrote, wrote an article about this coming ability to genetically enhance, our kids um, in utero. And his proposal was that uh, rich people should be banned from being able to use it and that only mm-hmm. poorer people should be allowed should to, because gener- you know, that would then improve intergenerational mobility. What you So we should actually flip it and say, actually, no, your kids are going to be fine anyway. And so we're only going to make this, we're only going to make genetic enhancement available to those who are currently the most disadvantaged because um, it's coming anyway. So it's a way I, to address a historic inequality. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, deploy it specifically against the way it would normally kind of be deployed. So anyway, we've come, we've gone, we've ended up at health, somehow or other. We ended up in health healthcare reform, which is definitely not where where I, I thought we'd, because we've definitely done interplanetary, we've done Mars, we've covered a huge amount of ground, um, and and ended up with some of the kind of political economy. But congratulations again on the book. Just. Uh, fascinating tour of biochemistry and interplanetary physics i mean it's just uh, uh just a 
just kaleidoscopic as i said kind of earlier in, in your breath and it really just and you know your the inside of your mind must be an incredible place to be given the different things you're thinking about all the time all the time chris so i just really want to place pre- but just <laughs> yeah but anyway thank you so much for coming on i pre- really appreciate your time thanks it was a pleasure and um uh, thanks so much uh, have a great day Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.